1: Before we kick off the show, if you're a fan of History Hack, please do what you can to support the show. We completely get that not everyone is able or willing to dig into their pockets. Times are hard, but by dropping a like, subscribing on Twitter and YouTube, and importantly, leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts, you can help the programme grow and reach more people. If you're interested in becoming a supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash historyhack, where you'll find perks from secret Facebook groups to early release material. If you just want to leave us a one-off tip, go to co-fee.com forward slash historyhack. The links are in the description. And whatever form your kind support takes, know that we are massively grateful. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another edition of History Hack. Zach flying solo today and flying solo is absolutely the theme for this one. We're going World War II and we're going planey. It's kind of sad that I haven't got Boney with me because he's the proper plane nerd. Um, but I'll, I'll do my best to fill in for that lovely Canadian and his dulcet tones. I'm joined by Patrick Erickson, who's a former lecturer in geology, but he's more recently been the author of a trilogy of books on German fighter pilots' experiences in World War II. He's looked at Northern Europe, he's looked at the Russian Front, and the last in the trilogy... The latest is called Alarm Start South and Final Defeat, which looks at the Mediterranean Theatre, broadly speaking, um, the Balkans, and then also, you know, the last stages of uh, the German Luftwaffe's attempts to defend the skies over Germany. Patrick, great to see you. Welcome to History Hack. How are you doing?
2: Thank you very much. Sam. I'm very happy to be here. Nice to talk to you, and I'm looking forward to a nice discussion and debate about all sorts of interesting things.
1: Absolutely. Well, let's, let's dive straight into that debate and that discussion. And one of those myths that seems to persist, this idea that the Luftwaffe was kind of a safe haven within Germany that was unaffected by ideas of anti-Semitism, devoid of Nazi indoctrination. My understanding from
2: the latest research is that that's complete rubbish. Is that right? That is complete rubbish, yes. And this was a common viewpoint put forward by all the German forces after the war that uh, you know, all, the, all the normal soldiers, sailors, sailors and airmen, they did their job, they just fought, they did no war crimes, and it went down very well for several decades, and then it all fell apart. But the uh, Luftwaffe was the newest of those three services, it was only founded after the accession of Hitler to the control of Germany, so it was founded within the Nazi era and on, on a Nazi basis, really. And Goering, the commander, had no religion whatsoever. And uh, the Luftwaffe had no uh, chaplains in the forces at all. So when they needed one or they felt they needed one for a burial or whatever, they had to find one in the nearest naval or army forces to to help them out. So, uh, and, uh, but, uh, you know, having said that also, there's, You've got the full spectrum of men in the Air Force, like in any of the forces, from a full-scale Nazi to one who couldn't or to one that's apolitical. But uh, at the end of the day, wherever they were, they were supporting the forces of a megalomaniac with some very nasty habits and uh, they cannot ever escape that aspect. It, it's tied into them forever. But that doesn't mean every airman or every soldier was a war criminal. And uh, quite a few of them fought quite hard and took pretty serious risk to stay out of some of the worst aspects of this let's uh, i can I, I can give an example yeah please stay and not from the mediterranean because uh but the eastern front was by far the worst ideological place to be in the second world war You had two political systems fighting each other neither of which was much better than the other one so the fighting was vicious and and uh yeah, the the innocent victims that much greater, and their punishment that much worse. But uh, there was a chap called Ginter Lutzer, who was uh, the commander of Jagdgeschwader three (JG3). Uh, Geschwader is about 120 fighters, and he was a, a pretty convinced anti-Nazi himself, from family background also, and he'd lost some uh, Jewish friends uh, permanent, permanently in the air force before the war. Committed suicide. When the laws came in against uh, you know Jews being any part of German life, and in 1941 at the start of the Russian campaign, a few months in, some of the einsatzgruppen Group, yeah, you these murder squads, came around about four or five of them came around to his field headquarters and his airfield and asked him, as a matter of course, as it were, for support, for some support from his men to to increase their numbers and help wipe out some some Jews, and he he sent them packing and he paraded his entire unit and he said anyone that goes in for this is going to get thrown out of the unit and has to do with him Now, to make a public statement like that was really taking a risk with his own life and his family's life so there were quite a few exceptions like that not dominant but enough sure but f- i mean for those who you're talking about
1: um somewhat apolitical and the fact that you've kind of got that full spectrum so I'm particularly mm. kind of thinking, you know, people like Hedda Luftwaffe Goering, dedicated Nazi. Um, how mm. much pressure is there on those who are apolitical to be drawn far more kind of centrally into Nazi ideology?
2: No, I wouldn't say that. Uh, I don't think they were pressured to become Nazis, even in high positions, but for the very... It, it, it would become a borderline issue, yes, uh, but not otherwise. Uh, but they would certainly have to toe the line with the Nazi philosophy and the Nazi systems and the, the Nazi hierarchy. There wasn't much choice of, in that. And that was the case right across Germany in all facets of life anyway. Uh, but no, it wasn't really forced on him. Goering was was fairly nice to his, his Air Force, and especially to the fighter pilots. He being an X1 himself, and he, he spoilt them a bit in terms of food supplies and luxuries and pay and things like that. So going was in many ways, I won't say schizophrenic, but getting close in his personality. You know, the diehard Nazi and, and and person who signed large-scale death warrants on one hand, to the kindly so-called uncle of the Air Force on the other. Let's talk about aircraft then um to
1: i mean, unashamedly going nerdy uh now as a kind of a, a break from a pretty kind of tense uh, and and difficult topic to discuss um the aircraft that they're flying these in the Mediterranean particularly the you know from the focus of, of this particular volume we're talking predominantly about things like the Messerschmitt 109 the 110 the 190, the sort of the the classic aircraft that if you are even a little bit of a nerd of this period you know yeah. that the 109 and the 190 particularly have pretty dominant reputations 109 very early in the war famously battle of britain kind of fame um fought for 190 being somewhat later in the war i mean my understanding of the Messerschmitt 110 is that it wasn't anything like the other two but i gather it was used um fairly consistently throughout the war um in a night fighter capacity if memory serves rightly um do these
2: also also as a ground attack aircraft uh uh, to a a fairly large degree in the mediterranean and on and on the eastern front yeah do these german pilots know that,
1: that particularly in the 109 and the 190 they got the technological upper hand and if so, how does that kind of impact on the tactics that they're using?
2: All right, uh, the, uh, take the 109 first. The, the the mutual relationship or dominance of one over the other changed consistently throughout the war. In the beginning, the 109E at the time of the Battle of Britain and the Spitfire Mark 1 and 2 were basically roughly the same. It would depend on the pilot and... Uh, to what extent he was really able and prepared to fly his, his aeroplane inside out, which not everyone could or would do. Uh, by the time the 109F came along, that was probably the best model ever in terms of just pure flying and performance. But a, a Spitfire Mark V could handle itself with a competent pilot against an F F model, and the same with a G. But the Focke-Wulf caused problems, and that came along in about August 1941. And it totally dominated on the Western Front. It flew later on the Eastern Front and in the Mediterranean, but not in over large numbers. Uh, the problem with the Fogger Wolf, it was faster than the Spitfire. It could outdive them, it could outclimb them. And worst of all, because the Spitfire was more maneuverable, they could outroll them. So the, the Spitfire could outturn them, but the Fogger Wolf could outroll them. You know and in in the dog fight out rolling and getting out the fight is a pretty critical maneuver if you can do it better than the other guy so the focal wolf caused a lot of trouble and a lot of worries until the spitfire mark nine came along which had a two-stage supercharger and that put once again then they became roughly equal to each other the spitfire nine and a Wolf, again depending on the pilot but having said all of that the aeroplane doesn't count when someone's caught by surprise by somebody else coming in from high altitude and high speed. So, uh, it's always up to the tactics used by the pilots. But certainly, your plane on average is better than the other guy's plane, your self-confidence is by definition better and you'll probably do better. So, and, and then throughout the rest of the war, well, the Spitfire 9 and later models basically stayed a little bit better and then when things like the Tempest came in, the Typhoon was predecessor, was a fairly dangerous aircraft, but the Tempest was a much less dangerous aircraft, except for the Germans. And then, a, a Tempest could certainly take on even the later Fokker Wolfs and, and make men feet out of them with a competent pilot. And then, of course, the German jets turned things around to a certain extent, but they were difficult to fly. Difficult to control. If you overdid opening the throttles, they would catch fire. The engines would catch fire. And uh, they'd often flame out again through throttle control problems. They had poor acceleration despite very high speed. Uh, So, if they slowed down enough to take some pot shots at a bomber, they would be vulnerable to accelerate away from a high speed prop plane. And uh, of course, their landing pattern was the big risk. It became quite slow and unstable landing and subject to flame out. So, that was their most vulnerable place in time, was always landing. I mean, having flown, uh, piloted an aircraft just
1: once in my life, I, I will kind of say that getting up is quite nice and easy. That's the fun part. Getting yes. back down again, that's, that's the hairy moment. Um, yes. And if you can't trust the aircraft, then then it's, it, it must not be a pleasant experience.
2: Um, I, I find myself very little when I was a kid. When I, I went solo when I was 17. That's as far as I ever got. And I was a rotten pilot. It took me 22 hours to get solo, most people would do it in about 10. But uh, I was hindered by my first instructor was an ex-World War II bomber pilot who was prone to dive bombing people that walked across the airfield. So he didn't, he didn't introduce me to the safest of, of processes of flying, but it's great. I mean, it makes you, if nothing else, it makes you realize just how difficult it is to fly an airplane decently. And uh, just how hard it is to fly, and like these guys would have had to fly them to survive.
1: Yeah, certainly, flying is one thing. Flying for your life, which is what these pilots so are hoping to fought. do, is is something else entirely. Um, yeah. I'm curious about what you said about the the Pock Wolf. Um What what made it better? You know, its ability. You were talking about, you know, it's ability to roll out of a fight. But what was it about the design and the, the way in which this thing was put together that
2: gave it that? Well, it, was, uh, it was a totally new design off the off the drawing board. The Messerschmitt was really a redesign of, of the Messerschmitt 108 Touring aircraft. And uh, the Focke-Wulf was just a brilliant plane. It was a beautiful design. The same as a Spitfire. The, the design is almost perfect. Every aspect hangs together properly. It all works well together fucker wolf was really the same the me 109 was a killer of an aircraft to to fly it killed probably it's difficult to say probably about a third of its pilots when they were young uh, when they taught people to take off for the first time in a 109 you'd be killing 20 30 percent those young pilots right there in front of their fellows and you can imagine what that did to the morale of the other people awaiting their turn you know, the torque effect on the on the engine, it's a very big engine, a very big propeller. It's torque effect is one way and the trouble with the 109, the torque effect was only felt when the tail lifted. And that you had literally a second to catch it as the tail lifted and put on full opposite rudder and if you pussy-footed around with it, you were dead. You had to put on that full rudder at exactly the same time, really aggressively and you'd take off straight, but if you didn't, you were off the runway, going too fast and you just... that was the end, you know, the thing would explode and... So it was never... You know, once you're an experienced pilot, it was great to have an airplane that's difficult to fly, but for the youngsters, and especially as the war went on, their training got less, to cope with this thing was harder and harder, and the focke didn't have that. It was a nice airplane to fly, it was fine to take off, it had a wide undercarriage, it like a hurricane, easy to land on a bad airfield, and, and it was a tough aeroplane and it had an air-cooled engine. It takes more damage before you could shoot the cylinder or two off, off the radial engine of a focke Wolf, it would still keep going enough to get you home. There's no ways uh, a water-cooled engine like in a Spitfire 109 would take that sort of damage, never.
1: And as you make the point, and we'll come on to in a bit, that ability to get home when you're flying in the Mediterranean theater is pretty oh, yeah. vital, um, oh, yes. regardless of whether you're in North Africa or whether you're flying sorties over the mid yeah. itself. Um, yeah. Are there any aircraft on the Allied side that they particularly fear? I mean, we talk about different um, evolutions of the Spitfire and how uh, some of those were- In
2: 1940, were- the Spitfire was feared, yes. Because there was, you know, at the beginning of the war, the Polish Air Force and then the Dutch and the Belgians and the French and everyone else, and the hurricane in France as well didn't really give them a, a scare. A hurricane in the hands of a good pilot or a French fighter in the hands of a good pilot could definitely shoot them down. Maldives, the great ace of 1940, was shot down by a French fighter. But it's only the Spitfire where the average pilot could at least equalize the one and one if not better it. Because in a hurricane, you need a pretty good pilot to do it. But the, the Spitfire. An average pilot could be as good as an average German pilot. And that gave them a fright because they weren't expecting it. You know, when you've won a whole lot of of campaigns in a row, your ego starts growing. They'd been in the Spanish Civil War; they thought they had it made. Hitler convinced them they were better than everyone else, and it was really quite a rude shock to meet an aircraft and an air force that didn't lie down and just take it. And that's that's where the the Spitfire fear came from, but. Once 1941, 1942 came along, the 109F and the G and the, and the FW 190, that fear would have lessened. It was never quite as bad ever again. So I would say no, no, apart from that, no British or, or British aircraft gave them much trouble or much fear. The American Bombers formations, yes. And put the fear of God into them. Because... Why uh, was that? Well, it's not because of their performance it's because of the sheer number of them they're carrying 10 or 12.50 caliber machine guns, not three or three caliber machine guns i don't know if you've ever seen a point 50 round it's a pretty big round if it hits you doesn't really matter where it hits you it's gonna knock a piece off uh and uh it doesn't take too many rounds to an aircraft four or five would probably do it as well and uh You know, you're attacking a box of these things, 30 or 40 aircraft at a time. Probably half of them are are able to get at least several guns onto you, as you come into every single attacking aircraft. And then of course, there's the escorting fighters. So uh, and there's no, you know, being an Ace, doing maneuvering, whatever you're doing, you have to get close, to get close enough to knock it down, you've got to get close enough that it can hit you back. It's like a Boxer, you can't hit without being hit. And uh, there's no real protection against that. Except you can arm your plane very heavily and then you get what they call a Schlacht aircraft, which is fine, but uh, it's not maneuverable. The when it's away from the Bombers, the Escort Fighters have fun of it. So, uh, they were scared of those Bomber formations. Uh, there's one of my witnesses in the Mediterranean who first saw one of these formations over Sicily in 1943. And uh, he went into attack and he was scared. He was so scared, he soiled himself in his plane. Now this is by no means unusual. People think this doesn't happen. But war is not clean, war is not nice, war is not pretty. And, uh, you know, this is the reality of facing this kind of situation for the first time. But these people out there, they're trying to kill you. They're not, they're not playing games, you know?
0: In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany, Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts.
1: There's also a point that actually, if you're flying long, long sorties and, you know, you haven't sorted out your body rhythm in advance, then, you know, sometimes you've got to go kind of thing. And, yeah. and it's, there's no pulling over and, and um, finding a, a bush to, to you know, squat behind. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about day to day life for these men. What does it look uh, like? What are they doing daily? How many how many sorties are they flying All of that kind of thing?
2: Yeah, daily life would depend very much if they're in North Africa or they're in Europe. I mean, if they're in Italy or Greece or, you know, Romania, some pretty comfortable country, before the Big Trouble started, that is, a place like Romania would be heaven because they had shops and and, and foodstuffs and things like that no longer available in Germany. Not too many missions, not too many enemies yet. It would have been great. And unlike an infantryman who's in a foxhole, they sleep in a bed every night to have meal at a table with tablecloths and waiters. So they are alternating a pretty good lifestyle with sheer terror of an hour's sortie once a day, twice a day, but certainly not five times a day, seven days a week. It's never that bad. No one can take that sort of punishment anyway. And, but in North Africa, when you're living in the desert, there's no waiters, there's no tables, the food is tinned, you don't have any meaningful refrigeration out there water is at the minimum water to wash and shave is at the minimum so many of them didn't shave while in operations the wind blows all the time everything sandblasted your foods full of flies and sand uh, toilet toilets and things like at uh, spade and a hole in the ground uh, and uh, the desert is boiling hot in the day and freezing cold at night and uh, you're going to get strafed and bombed pretty often, uh, and so on. It's, it's just nothing attractive and... Whereas the British Eighth Army and, and associates on their side could go back to Cairo every six months to the spots. There's no Cairo on the other side. The nearest big city is Tripoli, which, is an Arab, which was an Arab city and there was no spots for them to go to. So, uh, it was pretty tough. Is there much in terms of rotation for
1: those serving in North Africa? Do you see many units kind of being sent in and and then taken out um, and kind of doing tours, if you will, um, on
2: that particular kind of front? This is quite a controversial thing. Uh, Depending to what depth you've done research, you'll believe in German tours or not. Uh, The Germans didn't have tours as a formal system like the British and Americans did. Uh, you know, often the, the British or Americans would fly two or three hundred combat hours. And that would be the end of a tour for a fighter pilot. A bomber would be 20 or 30 missions, depending on the difficulty of the missions. The Germans didn't have that sort of formal structure, but once uh, a commanding officer could see a pilot was running down needing rest, he'd get him a rest If he was anything like a decent commanding officer. And there were plenty of opportunities for placing him in a training situation or a Office job or whatever. So, the answer to the tours for the Germans is yes or no, depending on the individual circumstances and especially the nature of the commanding officer. And in, in North Africa, the JG 27, the main German fighter unit, had one of the best. He treated his men very well, and uh, especially their top ace, Morsai, there was actually encouraged to excel by his commanding officer without that that commander he would never have got anyway he was treated properly
1: interesting that that kind of appreciation of the notion of burnout and the way in which it is and isn't built into um the the way in which both sides operate is is really curious (laughs) one thing we have to talk about here is the italians quite obviously the the germans aren't fighting on their own in the mediterranean We tend to be quite disparaging about um, the Italian land forces. What's Mm. the Luftwaffe's view about the quality of the Italian air force? Is there more recognition? Is there kind of professional respect there? Or is it a case of, you know, we're we're having to prop these guys up and they're useless?
2: Uh, There's better recognition of the air forces than the the ground forces. Uh, But the ground forces were so appallingly equipped on the Italian side. There, you know, they're, they're... even their armor was rubbish, you know, uh, A complex machine like a tank, you'd think it was like a build a tank and get the thing to move, it would be some worse, but it really wasn't. And in the, in the Air Force situation, the aircraft were not as good as the Germans. But having said that, the aircraft flew very well. The Italians loved to fly. They were much more enthusiastic, sporty type pilots who loved aerobatics, who loved to fly and who loved to fight I can say in a weird way, in an aerobatic sort of style, in a a showy sort of style. So the Italian Air Force was, some pilots thought they were very good, some thought they were very bad, but generally the Luftwaffe were a bit disparaging of them. They were a bit disparaging pretty much of everybody anyway. Being a good fighter pilot, part of that is being arrogant. You know, it's like a surgeon. You don't want, you don't want a timid surgeon operating on you. You want a really arrogant swine operating on you it's the same with a fighter pilot. But the Italians, they were certainly brave, they were certainly capable, but they, they, if their fighter problem was the engines, which just not strong enough, powerful enough, weight for weight. And when they started using German Daimler Benz or 109 engines, things improved a lot. And the other thing was the armament was generally quite weak, not enough guns, not big enough caliber, and the quality of the ammunition, was not that good. German ammunition was pretty good and high heating power for its caliber. The Italians, the opposite. So I would say nothing wrong with Italian piloting abilities, courage, etc., but suffered poor equipment.
1: And we've talked about the challenges of flying in the Mediterranean already. Just talk us through those in a little bit more detail and the way in which the pilots sought to overcome them, because there's one pretty remarkable survival story in there, isn't there, yes. of a guy surviving
2: for a whole week out in a dinghy in the mud. Eight days. Uh, he was, uh, what was his name again? I wrote down here, Felix Sauer. He was a biologist with a PhD in biology. And, uh, you know, there's no worse way of dying than of thirst in the ocean surrounded by water. This has got to be one of the worst ways to go. And he was shot down close to Malta within a couple of miles off the coast. And he started off when he first went westwards, and then he went back past the Island that night. Saw several motor torpedo boats going past, couldn't raise them with a the very light or anything, then he ended up drifting all the way in the opposite direction for eight days. And uh, what kept him going was, he had a sort of imaginary Yeah, you know, chat with various sea creatures and seabirds and things like that. He kept himself busy, he wrote little letters to his wife and uh he also, after a day or two, started drinking very small quantities of seawater a few times a day. Not a whole mouthful, just a little sip every couple of hours, and that kept him alive, and that was based on his on his biological knowledge. And as I say, he survived eight days. I don't think he got rain more than once in that time. And he had the most extraordinary luck in the middle of the Mediterranean to have an Italian destroyer go right past him and see him. I mean, the odds of that are Many, many thousands to one. So it was a remarkable story, huh?
0: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST.
1: That is a staggering story. I guess for others, it's it's not a case of being so lucky. Um, But we talked about North Africa sand, as you say, getting everywhere. Does that have an impact mechanically? You know, you don't want sand in your engine for pretty obvious reasons. So does the Luftwaffe kind of suffer with trying to deal with those things? Because it's not like they've got an extensive infrastructure available to them in North Africa. You know, we think of the ground forces and we're thinking, as you say, foxholes and tents. So how do they deal with those operational challenges? Do they have to build fast? Do they just learn ways to, to deal with it and kind of stick covers over their aircraft and so on. What's the philosophy? All the all the aircraft in North
2: Africa and in other similar areas subject to dust have dust filters built on. And that takes about mm, 10, 20, 30 miles an hour off the speed of any aircraft. So all everyone had to use them and everyone was almost equally affected by them. So it just brought the quality down a bit. Uh, but the sand was a nuisance. Engine life would have been a fraction of normal engine life and which, in any case, is only a few hundred hours at best. You know, the, the Aero Engines, the Aero Engines were well-designed. The problem in those days were the the metals and the alloys they were using were not the same quality as we have today. They didn't have high-temperature titanium engines and things like that. So, engine life was limited with the sand much more limited. Uh, you're right, the, the, the Germans and the Italians didn't have extensive workshop or base, uh, Air bases with large workshops and repair <clears throat> organizations behind the lines—they just throw it away and get a new one in. Whereas the British, having Cairo and industrial, partly industrial society behind them, had a much better way of fixing things up. But uh, maintenance very challenging. You know, getting clean fuel—the fuel has to be filtered before it goes into the airplane. If the wind's blowing, you can't really do that. The oil, exactly the same thing. Uh, the food, as I said, everything, the one constant you had in the desert was the wind's going to blow sometime every day. The flies are there all the time. You get some dreadful rainstorms and, and uh, floods and swamps coming along once a year as well. at inopportune times, it's just not a nice place to be. I, I know I'm a geologist, I've worked in deserts before. It's, it's not pleasant. It's just tough on everybody and very limited water. You know, if you've got, uh, say so two gallons per man per day, you're not going to waste much of that saving on bars or you're going to drink it. And in high temperatures, you need a lot of water per hour, basically. Health-wise, what are the issues they're facing
1: besides the obvious of dehydration? Do you see a lot of heat exhaustion or do they kind of know how to deal with that and prevent that?
2: Uh, for the pilots, I don't think heat exhaustion was a big deal because they keep themselves cool on the airfield in the side. Even in the aeroplane sitting on... <clears throat> waiting to take off, they had an umbrella over their head and so on. So, I think the desert was fairly healthy in terms of overall melodies and so on, but obviously stomach problems would always be endemic, because you're eating tin food, there's no little refrigeration, you're not getting fresh fruit or anything like that. Uh, so, you know what they used to call a Malta, Malta dog, which was called on the RAF side. Everyone suffered from stomach problems now. And your, you know, your toilet system—you couldn't have a long drop in the desert. You were trying to dig a hole in sand; doesn't work, you know. So, uh, not a pleasant place to be. Not particularly healthy. No. And how does morale
1: shift over this period? Because you could build a, a strong argument that there's a much longer indication than on any other front that the war isn't going particularly brilliantly for the Germans from El Alamein onwards. So do you kind of see peaks and troughs or is this kind of a a constant steady decline as it becomes increasingly apparent that they're just not able to hold the allies off?
2: Yeah, The the desert war, as you know, went backwards and forwards three times, backwards and forwards across the desert. And the problem, the thing is really quite simple. The further forward you go, the longer your, your lines of communication get, the harder it is to get things up front, especially fuel and ammunition, and vice versa. So that's why you can go forward a certain way, and then the other side gets the advantage again, and so on. But uh, I think from Tunisia onwards, they realized the writing was on the wall. Alamein, right throughout the desert campaign, actually, except in the first seven or eight months, the, the Allied side had more material than the Germans. But I must say, the, the, the British were never too good at building tanks. You know, they could build, uh, you know, the, the the tanks at the beginning of the war were very well armored, but they had a stupid gun on them. And, and then you end up with a thing like the Grand Tank, which has two guns and two separate turrets on on a on a single body. The weight of this thing compared to its power becomes ridiculous. And the, and the, the really decent tank which they finally got was the Sherman. But all of these tanks were totally outperformed by the 88 millimeter anti-aircraft gun, which they used on the ground against the tanks. So, uh, the trouble with the eighth army, they never had really good armor like the Germans had. And it's like you said about the confidence in your aircraft. The Germans had full confidence in their tanks and the anti-tank guns. And, uh, the other problem, of course, was, uh, British Army officer psychology that the, the tank regiments are essentially taken from cavalry regiments. And the cavalry mindset and the armored mindset are not the same at all. The cavalryman is is a he's a light horseman who goes long distances over short periods of time, whereas an armored guy is, is a totally different mindset to this. So and the Germans are natural sort of tankmen. And just think about a tank in the desert and those temperatures, what it's like to be in there, hatches buttoned down, going into action. You'd, you'd almost welcome dying. It's a dreadful thing to be inside.
1: I mean, they are basically boiling pots, aren't they? Um, yes. yes. I mean, you, it's, we're recording this in the midst of what's meant to be the biggest heat wave the UK has ever seen. Um, uh, and we're, uh, we're looking at sort of 40 degree temperatures. And yeah. you know that's, that's not unusual in North Africa. Mm. Now imagine going and sitting in your car for yeah. a few hours while somebody fires at you, um, whilst the engine is inside the and poorly yes. kind of muffled, um, yes. and you get maybe a semblance of what it might have been like for these men. Um, but what about the in the air? Is there kind of a, a knock-on in terms of morale and, and that
2: ebb and flow? Well, the, the German fighter pilots, the good ones, were confident right through to the end of the war because they, once you become, if you're a good fighter pilot and you're experienced, you can beat pretty much everybody until you meet the one guy who's as experienced as you are and might have a better aircraft. But your your chances of survival are much better. So they them were all tended to be quite good right through to the end because they, they they're riding on their ego. They're riding on their nerves, they're riding on their ego, and they tend to look at their narrow world because they can achieve success in that situation, even if the bigger picture of the war itself is a a total shambles. So, uh, and most frontline soldiers, sailors, airmen, are either not aware or don't care about the bigger situation. only care about their little world, their day-to-day world, the fighting they do, what their conditions are, what their success is. That's what they see, that's what they care about. So they don't see the war with the same perspective. We as an outsider or a historian might see it, not at all. So, but their morale certainly suffered from Tunisia on and that's because they started meeting these four-engine bomber formations. In North Africa, they were never keen on attacking the twin-engine bombers who caused them the most trouble. You know, the, the not the Blenheims, but the the Beltimores and the A20s and some mainly American aircraft, the, the Maryland which were not heavily armed, they'd have at best two guns facing backwards, one in front, one underneath, but they fly in formation, there's 10 or 12 of them and there's 24 or 30 machine guns. And when you see a formation of 12 of those, escorted by 36 Tomahawks, what are you going to attack? You're going to attack the Tomahawk because you know it's a much worse aircraft than your own. It doesn't shoot back, except from in front, if you don't get in front of it, you're not going to get hit. So they left, tended to leave the bombers alone, which was the wrong thing to do. That's a leadership problem that was never fixed. But once you got the four-engine bombers, as we talked about earlier, there's, there's no way of getting away from their fire. Can't avoid it.
1: How do they cope with the, the psychological blow of losing comrades?
2: Yeah, this is, it's very difficult, but all the reading and talking I've ever done, they They switch themselves off from it as much as they can. And as time goes by, it means they don't make friends anymore. Not not close friends and serious friends, because they know if they they get close to someone and they lose them, that's worse than not getting close to them. So it's a very difficult thing, it's a bad thing, but uh, if they're busy enough, it's less of a thing, because they're trying to stay alive themselves. And you must have seen the many pictures of pilots from any side landing after a mission, getting out the airplane and smiling from ear to ear and gesturing all sorts of directions, that's not because they've scored a victory or shot someone down, it's because they're still alive. It's it, it's a high of still being alive and and of knowing that even if your best friend's gone, he's gone, but I'm still here. And this is part of the universal belief it can't happen to me, which is a necessary psychological adjustment. If you don't have that approach, you're not going to do the job at all. So losing comrades very difficult, but it's part of war. It's at least in the air; it's fairly impersonal. You don't see what happens like you do on the ground. This is
1: true, um, and and that kind of sense of, I don't know if it's a sense of emotional detachment. I think it perhaps depends slightly on who you speak to. Certainly, some of the yeah. veterans that I speak to and know on the British side, some kind of feel it. And uh, I know one very close to me who um, wasn't kind of um, tuned in to the the emotional um, kind of nature of what you're doing to one another in the air. Um, You you make the point that this theatre saw some of the top scoring aces on both sides. Talk us through the stories of, of those big individuals.
2: Yes, well, the, on on the uh, the Allied side there's uh, Pat battle Pat was just a nickname. He was a South African, and uh, his score has never been determined accurately. The uh, the Greek campaign, where he, he scored about half of them, the records were lost and left behind in the debacle of getting out of Greece, and he was killed there. So uh, it it would appear he has at least forty, and depending what uh, story you want to believe, anything up to 60, probably something in excess of 40 shot down. But Battle was uh, really a very, very gifted individual. He got all his successes in gladiators and hurricanes, flying against largely superior aircraft. And he was just a very, very good pilot. He could make aeroplanes do things that most people couldn't. He could get into and out of situations they couldn't. He was a deadly shot. And uh, He was also someone that cared deeply about the men under him, so he took a lot of risk to protect him. That's how he got killed in the end. Uh, And not that much is known about him, because there's only the one book written about him. It's come out in two editions. And a few memories, people, some of his comrades who survived, have have brought back with him. And uh, yeah, so, I don't know what else one can say about him, but a basically serious individual a serious individual who took his duties to those under him and for himself, pretty seriously. And on the German side, you've got Maasai, who's uh It's difficult to say one human is more complex than another, because it's probably not true. But certainly on, on appearance's sake, he would appear to be a much more complicated personality. Uh, he's often painted in quite a few well-known books as an anti-Nazi, I personally would not buy that, because uh, his father, his his biological father, ended up on the Russian front running a division that that, uh, hunted terrorists and uh, people like that, most of them were not terrorists, they would shoot anyone they could find, so anyone that ran a, a police division on the Russian front is not a very nice person, and certainly not any kind of an anti-nazi and then his his stepfather was a nazi mp amongst other things related later joined the nazi police which again is no recommendation at all so his family background is anything but anti-nazi and uh marsay was in some ways an exhibitionist and in some ways a very shy person he used the one to cover the other so he would do things and and say things that would make him look like an Anti-Nazi. For example, at, at one meeting with Hitler and a lot of Big Shots when they gave him his latest medal, he played jazz on the piano. And some authors say, well, this is to annoy Hitler and show he's an Anti-Nazi. But it's not, it's just him being himself and putting on the act to, to, to disguise the real person who's drawn and withdrawn and... and uh, totally addicted to flying, to combat flying. And uh, I was fortunate enough to to get to know in Pretoria and South Africa, the, a psychologist off a Luftwaffe psychologist who in South Africa had been used to determine what the qualities were for the South African Air Force in terms of hiring pilots, what he looked for in terms of personality traits, etc, etc. And he went to Germany before the war to do research and he got caught there by the outbreak of war and because he was a German citizen by birth, he got roped into the forces. And he ended up doing basically the same job in the Luftwaffe. And then after a while, they decided they would take anyone in the Air Force anyway, and they got rid of that entire section. And they sent them touring around the units just to look at how the pilots performed, how their morale was and so on. And he ended up spending several months with Maasai's unit and observing him and how he stood up, up to the rigors of combat. And uh, Maasai was was a very, very sensitive person who who uh, went almost into a state of ecstasy when he flew in combat. And it was, he would be a joker and an exhibitionist till he got into his aeroplane. And then as he put his flying helmet on, he, he went into a totally different world. Of his own, he became detached from anything around him and totally focused on the job at hand. And he'd fly his guts out and come back and land down again and be so exhausted, he couldn't get out the aircraft because his entire mental energy had gone into, into the flying. And then after a few minutes, he'd get up and resume the cover personality. So, in, in it's, it's not schizophrenic or anything like that, but it's, it's, it's one person, one aspect of the personality hiding, probably the core aspect of the personality. And uh, I was able to chart his, his periods in combat versus his periods of leave at home, which was quite often medical leave, Uh, and the the combat periods got shorter and shorter, and the medical leave between them got longer and longer, so he was burning himself out completely. And his commanding officer Naiman made sure that he got the leave he needed to keep him going. But like any commander, he was managing him as a fighting asset to keep him going as long as possible and knowing very well in the end, it, it could only end badly and it did. He burned himself out and died in an accident. So, Patel and, and Marsai, two absolutely opposite personalities in almost every way, except perhaps flying ability. Each of them was really an excellent pilot in the first place. That did things with an aircraft that others just couldn't do. And no two can compare with them either, anywhere across the spectrum And anyway. You've talked there about
1: sort of end games, if you will, for those two, particularly. L- just kind of thinking more broadly in terms of what happens to some of these men, obviously a significant number die. But
2: mm-hmm. for
1: those who survive, how do they make it back? I guess it's, is it as simple as it just depends who captures you? You know, if you get captured by the Russians, then your odds are worse <laughs> than if you're captured by the Allies. The, yeah. the, sorry, yeah. I should say the
2: Americans and the, the British. Yeah, it, it, that is very true. Uh, if you ended up in Canada or the States, which could be British capture or Canadian capture or Allied capture, could put you there. Most of the most of the POWs in Britain were shipped off to Canada and even America to to clear space for the next lot to come into the UK. Then it would take them a couple of years to get back. So the, the war ends in 1945, these guys were getting back 46, 47, 48, even 49. And most of those that came back via the UK were kept there as farm laborers for a year or two. Which, I mean, they all wanted to get home, but uh, what was there to go home to? In many cases, they'd lost family members or all their families in the bombing raids. Uh, if they'd lived in East Germany, everything they owned was gone. If they lived in the West, the odds of it being flattened by bombing were pretty good. There were no jobs to come home to. Uh, there was... many of them and had no careers, they were too young before the war. They had... Nothing, they had really nothing to bring them back. So spending a year or two on a... on a farm in the UK, getting well fed, you're basically free to go around as you like compared to prison camp, that's pretty good. And, if you can delay your return to Germany by a couple of years, at least the reconstruction has started, the attitudes have changed. So, perhaps not such a bad thing. Uh, there's one chapter who was taken by the French, which was not such a good thing in North Africa. The ex vc French that became the pro-Allied French, they kept it there for about four years. They imprisoned them in the desert. They didn't even bother to lock them up too well, because if they got out, so there's no ways they'd get out alive, and so he had it pretty tough. And and when he got back, his mother stayed in Berlin. She died of cancer, everything had gone, there's no home left, there's nothing. Uh, and, and in the Russian front, the worst of all, they got out. Strangely, some of them got out within a few weeks or months. The Russians, have, if nothing else, are very inconsistent in their treatment of prisoners, by and large, they treat them very badly, but some of them sort of ignored them and just let them go. It's kind of weird. Uh, But the last ones got home in 1955, when the German government, when the German uh, Chancellor went to Moscow and basically made peace as it will, made some sort of retribution for the war and then they agreed to let all the prisoners go back. But by then, not so many were alive, not because the Russians deliberately treated them badly or starved them. The Russians quite simply didn't have any better for their own people. You know, their own troops were very badly fed with Russian logistics, as you can see today in Ukraine, are just not very good. The distances, the difficulties make it so. So, uh, the death rate in German prison camps was largely due to the poverty of Russia.
1: Ten years to get home, nineteen fifty five. That's that's staggering. Oh. And when I'm, they come
2: home, the man's a wreck, you know, he's ten yeah. years in a for well, five years at war, ten years in a prison camp, fifteen years, your life gone, you look about forty, you know. It's
1: that that takes some processing, just thinking about mm-hmm. that. Um I'm really curious about your source material for this because you've drawn on oral testimony from Luftwaffe pilots which is, is incredibly valuable just as a, a source in its own right. But at all oral testimony is a very delicate process when it comes to interviewing. And there are all kinds of things you have to factor into what you do.
2: So what was it like collecting these accounts? It was, well, it took me about 15 years. It was fascinating. I loved every second of it, but it was a lot of work. I had a few advantages. Uh, I'd been to school as a kid in Switzerland for a year, so I, I learned a basic German and a colloquial German, conversational German, which is much more useful. And secondly, I was a, an associate member of the German Fighter Pilot Veterinary Association. So that gave me two open doors immediately. And uh, I guess I was serious about what I was doing. I wasn't... and I was said it to them. I wasn't trying to write a book about the era of fighter pilot who descends out of the clouds and shoots everyone down. This is not what it's about. I was trying to find out what it was really like and what they really experienced. So I think the kind of questions I asked them appealed to them to answer. I mean, every letter I wrote and got an answer, I probably wrote two and I got nothing. And you have to understand, as I'm sure you know, veterans, because of what they've been through, often don't want to talk about it. And one can totally understand that, you know, I'm a veteran myself, it's, it's, it's a it's a perfectly understandable thing. But uh, I was able to put pretty much any question to, not all of them. Some of them were very touchy about any criticism whatsoever. Others were touchy about a certain amount of criticism, but others were totally open and honest. And those people, I would and I did ask them anything. I would ask them about the Holocaust and if they had any personal experience about it and uh, they would answer me honestly you know you uh, uh in the in the other two books there's a guy called hans tubenbach who was who started flying in 1927 that's long before the nazis were in power so he was a real old world gentleman with the values of that generation and i could literally ask him anything and he answered me totally and fully honestly on every aspect i asked him so you get everything from that extreme to the other extreme that could find no fault with anything they did. Edun Neumann was the commander of 3027 in North Africa and a highly respected personality and pilot in the in the community of German fighter pilot veterans. I talked to him on the phone in Munich. I made a a couple of work visits to to Munich to do with my job and uh, he would never meet me and he had problems with what I was doing. And he had problems that I was doing it, and I was not a German. So then, when you met with that situation, you just carry on and forget about it, because you're not going to be able to do anything about that. And then I met someone else in Munich who I'd corresponded with for years, and he came in to pick me up there, in in the city, and take me out to to his place for the day. He lived about 50 um, miles south of Munich, right near the Bavarian Alpsburg. He spent a lovely day together and drove me back, and he had one leg, and he had his other leg shot off during the war by an American .50 caliber bullet, and uh, he had a, because of that, he had a special pension which he used to buy a special souped-up BMW coupe, and he could drive this thing, you know, a fighter pilot can drive a car, because compared to flying a plane, it's pretty easy. So it was quite an experience to sit in a, a really fast BMW on a German Autobahn, where there's no speed limits, for the guy that had this fingertip control, and he was in his seventies over his car, and you could see how this man was a fighter pilot. It was an experience.
1: I can well imagine it was an experience. Mm. Patrick, it's been really, really fascinating to talk to you about this. People are going to want to go and get this book. So the latest of the trilogy is Alarm Start South and Final Defeat. There are three of them. They are published by Amberley folks. We will stick a link in the History Hack bookstore so that you can go straight through to buy them. And Patrick, thank you so much for your time. And thank you for sharing what f- sounds like 15 years of really painstaking research. It's been great to kind of quiz you on these things and, and find out so
2: much about these these men's experiences. Thank you, Zach. I really appreciate it and I, I really enjoyed your questions. When I saw those questions, I was really happy